We found in the Gospel according to St. John, in chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. Verses 37 and 38, in the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly, his innermost parts, shall flow rivers of living water. I read those two verses because, in a sense, they should be taken together. But I fear that I shall only be able to direct attention to the 37th verse. Verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now, here we come to the end of this great and extraordinary scene which was enacted and happened, you remember, so long ago in the temple at Jerusalem. We've been considering this chapter and its story since the beginning of last April, Sunday night by Sunday night. And we have seen what an extraordinary and amazing story it is. Our Lord, you remember, at first didn't seem to be going up to this Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem. And his brothers stumbled at that, couldn't understand it. And thereby manifested their lack of belief in him. But later, our Lord went up to Jerusalem and to the Feast of Tabernacles. And you remember how about halfway through the feast, in the midst of the feast, we are told, he went up into the temple and taught. And we've been considering together in detail what that led to, the reaction of different groups of people as they were there hearing him, seeing him, observing him. And we have found, alas, that the main characteristic of their attitude was one of unbelief, failure to recognize him, failure to understand him, failure to see what was involved in their rejection of him. We've seen their bitterness, their deciding and plotting together to arrest him and to kill him. Thus, in spite of all that he said to them and all that he taught them, they remained obdurate in the blindness and darkness of their unregenerate hearts and its consequent unbelief. However, here now, we come to the end of the story. We come to the last day of the feast, that great day of the feast. Now, the learned commentators spend a good deal of time and use a great deal of ink in arguing as to whether this was the seventh or the eighth day. It can't be decided. They can't decide it. And, of course, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter at all whether it was the seventh or the eighth day. Indeed, there is only one thing about the Feast of Tabernacles that is a little bit important for us to the understanding of what we are considering tonight. 
And that is, we must realize and understand in a measure what it was that took place during this Feast of Tabernacles. And now I'm not referring to the fact that they dwelt in tents, in booths. We've already dealt with that. I'm referring to something that was done by the authorities themselves who had the task and the duty of conducting the feast. And the point to which I'm referring is this. That during the seven days of the feast, it was the custom for water to be drawn in golden pitchers from the pool of Siloam. There they went with their golden pitchers. And they drew water out of the pool of Siloam and then carried it in procession to the temple. And as they did so, the priests poured out the water and as this was being done, certain singers chanted together what you can read in the 12th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah verse 3, which is this. Therefore, with joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. There was something that happened during seven days of the feast, and perhaps also on the eighth day. It isn't certain. There they went with their golden pitchers. They threw the water out of the well. As they were carrying it back to the temple, these singers were chanting, Therefore with joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. And then the water was poured upon the altar in the sight of the people. Now there is no doubt at all that it was with that in his mind that our Lord did the thing to which we are directing attention this evening. That was an essential part of this feast. In this symbolic manner, this water was drawn and it was anticipatory of the salvation that God was going to send to his people with joy. Shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Now then, here we come to the last day, probably the eighth day. Everything is finishing. It was a day of convocation, a day of worship, a day of praise, a day of adoration. And what we are told is this, that on this last great day, the Lord Jesus Christ stood up. And it not merely means that he stood up, he deliberately chose a prominent position where he could be seen by everybody. The courts of the temple were undoubtedly thronged by all the people, the people of Jerusalem and others who'd come up from different parts of the country to the feast. There was a great concourse of people. But he deliberately chose a spot where everybody could see him. He stood up in a prominent position. And he cried out, he lifted up his voice. And this is what he said. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And then he went on to speak those other words, which are a sequel of this acceptance of his invitation to come and drink. Anybody, he says, who does come and drink and who therefore believes in me, out of his inward parts shall flow rivers of living water. Well, here is the climax to this scene that we've been considering together so long. 
And, of course, it is a typical gospel climax. It is typical of the whole method of the gospel. What do I mean? Well, I mean something like this. Here, you see, we come to the end of the argument and the argumentation. Here, there is no longer any analysis. Here, there is no longer any exposure of the blind unbelief of these people. Our Lord has done all that. He has been patient with them. He has allowed them to speak. He has read their minds. And he has given his answer to their every position. But now, all that comes to an end. There's no argument here. There's no disputation. There's no analysis any longer. What is it? Well, just a glorious invitation. An astounding offer. Now that, I say, is something that is typical and characteristic of the gospel. That is how the gospel always comes. It always starts with conviction. It always starts with an exposure of the need. It is always law, then gospel. That is invariable. It's in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. What's the Old Testament? In a sense, it's law, nothing but law. What is the New Testament? Gospel, grace. You see, it's the law that leads to the gospel. The law was our schoolmaster to lead us and to bring us to Christ. And that's what our Lord has been doing with these people. He's taken them up point by point. He's answered his reason. He's given explanations. He's shown them where they are and what their state is. And then, having done it all, this amazing proclamation, this announcement, this invitation. That's the method. Ah, yes, but I must add something to that. There's a second thing here that is so characteristic of this glorious gospel of the blessed God. He issued this invitation. In spite of all that was so true of those people to whom he was issuing it. That's the amazing thing. After all that we've been considering. After all their malice and their bitterness and their hatred and their plotting. After all their scorn and their sarcasm and dismissal of him as this fellow. He still gives this invitation. You know, that might very well detain us this evening, but we mustn't allow it to do so. You remember, don't you, that our Lord addressed even Judas Iscariot at the very end, after he'd already betrayed him, he addressed him as friend. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If anybody in this congregation ever finds himself or herself in hell, it will be in spite of the fact that you've heard these gracious words. It is free grace. It is in spite of us. It is in spite of our behavior. In spite of our recalcitrance and hardness and obduracy. It's in spite of all that. That he stands up and he says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Oh, what a gospel, I say, that in spite of us and all our rejection still continues to speak to us and to address us and to invite us to hearken unto its message. Well, now then, let us consider it together. 
And I'm anxious to do so this evening in a very practical manner. Because I think that oftentimes men and women fail to enjoy the benefits of this gospel simply because they haven't understood it in its simplicity and in its practical aspect. Very well then, let us look at it like this. First, to whom is this invitation addressed? Let us look at the people to whom it's addressed. Well, our Lord describes them, he defines them. If anyone, he says, is thirsty. If anyone is thirsty. If any man thirst. Now, you notice that the invitation is to such people. It isn't to anybody else. You go through these Gospels and keep your eye on our Lord's invitations and you will always find that he defines the people to whom he's addressing the invitation, as he does here. Come unto me, he says on another occasion, who? All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so it is with all his invitations. He always makes it, I say, perfectly plain and clear. Uh, as to whom exactly he is inviting. Now let's be clear about this before we go any further. There is only one essential condition to coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the blessings that he has to give. And it's this one. That you know what it is to thirst. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Very well, then, what does this mean? Here's the most important matter, obviously. Who is he inviting? Well, let me put it negatively first, because this little word thirst is a very pregnant one. And it is so essential that we should understand its meaning. Who is he inviting? Well, uh, he's not inviting somebody who's merely a little bit curious. He isn't uh, merely inviting people who rather like uh, tasting and trying different drinks. They spend a lot of time in trying drinks. Ah, oh, they say, here's a new drink that somebody's talking about. Well, what about that? What's, the, what's that? Oh, I, I'll, I'll try a little of that. That's not the p sort of person that he is inviting. They, you see, are merely curious, and they come with a kind of detachment. It isn't really that they need drink, it isn't that they're thirsting, it's not that they're desperate, but they're, they're always out to try something new, and therefore animated by curiosity. They hear this invitation, and they are ready to, to go to him, but you know, he doesn't invite them. You read these Gospels, and you'll find that there were many people like that when our Lord was here in the flesh. Ah, oh, they said, who's this? He's rather unusual, this. And uh, we hear that he works some rather striking miracles. Now then, and after him they went, but you see, when he began really to preach to them, they left him and they went home. They turned their backs on him, and they said they'd never listen to him again. Mere curiosity. Oh, my dear friend, let's be perfectly clear about this. If you are merely curiously interested in the Lord Jesus Christ, You'll never know him. Never. You'll never enjoy the benefits of Christian salvation. The dilettante attitude is absolutely fatal in this connection. He doesn't reveal himself to such people. There is no invitation to them. It's not the curious. 
Neither is it uh, to the type of men of whom we can say that he's uh, always ready to enjoy a drink and to accept any invitation to do so. There are many people who drink like that, are there not? Ah, if somebody says, come and have a drink, they're always ready to drink with him. And there are people like that in the spiritual realm. This isn't so much curiosity as it's utter thoughtlessness. They're just ready to respond to any appeal whatsoever, and it doesn't matter what sort of meeting they go to. If there's an appeal at the end, they respond. They'll try anything. Any invitation that's given, they're always ready to accept it. And they do things that contradict one another utterly and absolutely, but it's of no value, of course, at all. That isn't the kind of person our Lord's uh, inviting, just the person who enjoys a drink. And let me give you another negative. There are some people who are ready to accept an invitation to drink simply because they're anxious to have some temporary relief. They've got some trouble, some problem. And there they are, they're thinking about it and they keep on going over it and they become unhappy, they can't sleep at night. They're troubled and worried by this problem and somebody tells them, look here, you have a drink, you know, and it'll make you feel better and you'll forget it. You'll forget your troubles, you can drown your sorrows. And they're prepared to take the drink in order to get rid of their troubles and their sorrows and their problems. They, they want nothing but a temporary satisfaction. That's not thirsting. The mere desire for relief is not thirsting, my dear friend. You see, that is the approach of people who are to be found always amongst the cults. And that is what gives being and success to the cults. These people who want to get rid of their problems, want of happiness or peace or this or that, and they're interested in nothing but that. They just want relief, temporary satisfaction. And they'll jump at anything that's offered to them. They're not interested in whether it's true or false. They don't want to think. All they want is relief. And they don't care what it is as long as it relieves them. The cult mentality. But that isn't first. That's just a sort of general restlessness and a desire for some kind of relief. And then, of course, there are other people who are always out for any experience that can be obtained. And if they hear of some new drink or new drug that can give people an experience, they go after it. If there's a new teaching or a new cult that can do so, they fly after it. There are people who are just longing for some experience or other. If they hear about somebody with an experience, they want it, and they crowd after it, and they try to obtain this. The experience hunters. But that again isn't a thirst. All these things are far removed from what our Lord means by if any man thirst. What's he mean then? Well, let's look at it positively. He means really thirst. He means a man that is so thirsty that he is desperate. By if any man thirsty means an intense spiritual need. Now, the very term thirst suggests that in and of itself, doesn't it? That's the man who's really thirsty. A man who feels he's almost desperate and that unless he's given something soon, he's going to die of his thirst. That's the connotation. 
like the men, the prodigal son, you remember, in the far country. When he came to himself, he began to be in need. He was desperate. Blessed are they, this is our Lord, that to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's it. Same thing. It doesn't mean, you see, well, well, yes, you'd be rather glad to have a meal or a drink uh, now and again and the conviviality and the happiness, but it doesn't matter very much if you don't have it. No, no. Here's a man who's desperately in need of drink. Thirst. That's what he means by if any man thirst. Now then, this is, of course, a spiritual matter. What is he referring to? What is this spiritual need? These are the people to whom the Lord Jesus Christ sends out his invitation, saying, Come unto me and drink. And if you do so, you'll find that rivers of water will flow out of you. What is this intense awareness of need? A need of what? Well, here are some of the things. Need of a purpose in life. A feeling that life is vain and empty, that it's no point and no purpose in it. It's a man who suddenly becomes aware of the fact that he is merely existing. Simply one day coming after another. And a week after week and year after year, but there's no point in it, there's no purpose in it. He doesn't know what he's doing, nor why he's doing it. He can't look ahead, he doesn't want to look back. He's just living like an animal, eating and drinking. There's no purpose in life. But suddenly he awakens to this. He begins to talk to himself again as that prodigal did and says, what am I doing here? What's the purpose of this? I seem to have missed the mark and missed the way. I've missed the road. I've gone astray. I'm in a far country. I must go back and get a purpose. Whatever it is, however humble, a purpose in life. Have you known what it is to feel that your life is purposeless? What are you living for, my friend? Do you know the meaning of your life? What's it all about? All the energy and all the money that you expend, what's it for? What's it leading to? Is there a purpose? You know, this is a a tremendous thing when a man awakens to the fact that there's no purpose in his life. And he longs to have some purpose, something to live for, and something ahead of him to which he can look and towards which he is making a great purpose in life. A longing for that, to have reality in his existence in this world. That's one of the things. But here's another. Rest of conscience and the loss of a sense of guilt. Do you know what it is to to thirst for that? Do you know what it is to have your conscience condemning you? Do you know what it is to feel that the law of God is against you? Do you know what it is to feel that you want to run away and hide when you feel that God is near you or that you've got to face God? Your conscience is evil, your conscience is condemned, your conscience is striking you down. You want to forget, but you can't forget. You say, what can I do? I'm condemned, my vice within me is condemning me. And you long for peace of conscience, for rest of mind and of heart. Do you know what it is to long for that? That's this thirsting about which he's speaking. And then another thing is the longing for righteousness. 
the longing for a clean heart. Here is a man, you see, depicted by our Lord, who realizes his unworthiness and his uncleanness. He is able to say with the Apostle Paul in me, that's to say in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He knows what it is to feel a moral leper. It isn't merely that he does certain things that are wrong, but he himself is wrong. He's unclean within, and he longs to be clean. He says, oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels thy blood so freely shed for me. He's a man who knows what David meant when he said, create within me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Here is a man, you see, who's been governed by his lust. He's committed adultery, and then he's murdered the woman's husband in order to gratify. And oh, he suddenly awakens to the state of his heart, its blackness, its vileness, and its filth. And he cries out, saying, Create within me a clean heart, O oh God. He's thirsting for righteousness and for purity and cleanliness of heart and of the inner man. That's the sort of person the Lord Jesus Christ invites. And then the man who longs for strength and for power. He's thinking of a man, you see, who, having realized something of all this, says, now I'm going to be a better man. I really am. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm giving up those evil companions. I'm going to give a, live a new life. I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm starting afresh. but who can't do it, who finds that he ever fails and says to will is ever present with me, but how to perform I know not. The evil that I would not, that I do, and the good that I would, I do not. I find that in the law of my mind I'm after the law of God, but I find another law in my members. I cannot. He's weak. He's frail. He fails. He longs. He thirsts for strength. For power, for deliverance, for ability to resist temptation. That's the sort of men our Lord is inviting. And then add to this a thirst and a longing for God himself. As the heart panteth for the water brooks, so panteth my heart after thee. My soul cries out for the living God. Do you know anything about a thirst for God, my friend? Oh, I don't mean an intellectual interest in him, someone to argue about, someone to reason about from the scripture or without the scripture. I mean that suddenly you begin to be aware of a longing to know God, the only true God. A thirst for God. And then, if you like, you can add to this. Here is a man who is longing for light on the future. He sees his life ebbing away. Year comes after year, and they come so quickly. Twelve months since I last went on vacation, it's come again. Life is moving. Where am I going? What's beyond? Death, what beyond it? He doesn't know. And he wants to know. 
a glimpse into the future, an insight into eternity. Oh, he'd give the whole world. If he could but see his life whole, if he could see it steady, if he could see it in its completeness, oh, that he might know these things. That's the men our Lord's inviting. Now, let's be quite clear then about this, you see. If, if we are not aware of any of these things, of course, the invitations of Jesus Christ to us Oh, just uh, some words that were once uttered. They've never meant anything to, uh, to us. Of course, if you still feel that life is wonderful and that you're wonderful yourself and that you're doing remarkably well in life, you're looking forward to the next party or the next, next outing, the next bit of pleasure. Is all well. Well, of course, if it is, I'm not surprised that you don't believe in Christ and that you've never come unto him. And this invitation of his will mean nothing at all to you. These are the people he invites. But if you do know what it is to thirst for these things, I'm glad to be able to tell you he's calling you. Listen to him. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Yes, it means not only that he's felt this need and felt it acutely, it also means that he's failed to find a supply, obviously. If he could find a supply, he wouldn't be thirsty. But he is sought everywhere. He's tried. He's divined, he's prospected, he's consulted others. He says, give me water, give me something. I'm dying, I'm desperate unless I'm given something soon. There is no hope for me. He sought, he sought everywhere, but still he cannot find. He's desperate. He's dying, he's on his last legs. He doesn't know what to do nor where to turn. He's fallen down in utter weakness. And with a sense of failure, he says with Augustus, Top Lady, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow all? For sin could not atone. He's desperate, he's hopeless, vile and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. What can I do? Thirst, desperation, death. Stalking ever nearer to him, and there's no supply, there is no water. Such is the man to whom the invitation is extended. And what is the invitation? Let me note its glorious terms. Come unto me and drink. Now then, here is the practical thing, isn't it? Are you thirsting and desperate? You say to me, what am I to do? Listen, come unto Christ and drink. What's he, what do you mean, says someone? What do these figures mean? Well, fortunately, he interprets it. He says that the man who does come unto him and drinks is the man who believes. As the, he that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said. That's it. Coming to Christ and drinking is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does that mean, says someone? Now I say I want to be practical. Our Lord was giving a very practical invitation. Well, let us start therefore with the word me. Come unto me and drink. What an astounding statement. What a staggering claim. Look at the scene again. Feast of Tabernacles, last day, great day of the feast. The golden pitchers and the waters, anticipatory, I say, of the coming of a great Messiah, a great deliverer, and the waters of salvation that are going to be available. He stands up and he says, if any man thirst, 
If any man is longing and waiting for the Messiah, come unto me and drink to me. I, who is this? Well, it's just another way of saying, isn't it, that he is the well of salvation. Here is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Here is the one to whom the seers and the prophets and the psalmists looked forward. Here is the great antitype of all the types and the shadows and the foreshadowings of this person, this salvation that was to come. It is he, it is all in him. He's come. There is no longer, he says, any need to look forward. I have come. Here is the Savior of the world. Here is the Christ of God. Here is eternal life and salvation. Oh, how often did he say it? Do you remember how he put it to the woman of Samaria? Exactly the same thing. Here she was with her pitcher coming to draw water out of that well there in Samaria. And our Lord said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Listen to him again. He says, I am the bread of life. The bread, the staff of life. I am the bread of life. I am, he says, the light of the world. Any man walking after me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life, the light of the world. I, he says again, am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Listen to him. I, if I be lifted up, shall draw all men unto me. All types and kinds out of every nation, Greeks as well and Jew, as well as Jews. I, if I be lifted up. That's it. And then listen to him again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but... By me. Oh, my dear friend, if you're not clear about this, is there any point in my going on? I am preaching to you that Jesus of Nazareth was the only begotten Son of God. I am saying here this evening again that that blessed person who appeared at that point in history has come from heaven. He's no man. He's no mere teacher. He's no prophet. He's no philosopher. He's Son of God. The incarnation. God hath visited and redeemed his people. That's the message. This person. So that his apostles, when they went out to preach, said something like this. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at that little man Paul, Saul of Tarsus, become a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What is he preaching? Well, of course, he could have preached philosophy. He was a very able man and a very learned man to boot. He is a man who studied at the feet of Gamaliel. 
He's a man who can quote the Greek poets and the Greek philosophers. And yet when he goes there, he says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? For he is the Savior alone. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Do you realize that into this perplexing, sinful, dark, and evil world in which you live, and through which you are passing but once never to return, that God has sent his only Son? That's it. Come unto me. It is the assertion of his deity, his equality with God, and his coming as the Messiah in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does he give? Well, he tells us what he gives. He says, come unto me and drink. What's it mean? It means what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. What are they? Well, here are some of them. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. What you want? Well, the first thing you need is forgiveness, my friend. You're right, it's that troubled conscience. You can't get rid of your past, what you've done. What I have done, I have done. And there is the record. And I can't erase it. How can I face God? I need forgiveness. Where can I find forgiveness? Here's the answer. In whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sin. Come unto me and drink. You go to Jesus Christ and he will tell you that he has borne your sins in his own body on the tree. That you have no need to worry about them. He's taken their punishment. He has received the stripes that were due to you. He bore them. That's why he died. It was your guilt and mine that killed him. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he smote him. He struck him. He bled. He died. He is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And he takes your sins away. Go to him. He'll tell you that. He'll satisfy your longing for forgiveness, for pardon. He'll give you peace of conscience and rest of mind. Redemption. And then he'll give you a knowledge of God. It is he alone can do it. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, he says, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. No man knoweth the Father save the Son, and no man knoweth the Son save the Father, and him to whom he willeth to reveal him. We're in his hands, but you go to him. Would you know God? Would you know God as your father? Would you know God as the one who's waiting to bless you? Would you know God as one who loves you? Would you know God as one who cares for you and will never let you go? Go to Christ and he'll give you the knowledge. Come, he says, unto me and drink. Do you want life, I say? Go to him and you'll hear him saying, I am come that they might have life 
and that they might have it more abundantly. Do you know what that means? To feel that you have life, life with a purpose, life with an object, life which is real, life which is everlasting. Come unto me, he says, I am come that you might have life. No longer will you be but the sport of circumstance and accident and chance. You will have a mastery of life, a control of your own living and your own outlook. He will give you life which is life indeed. Do you want understanding? Well, it is only to be found in him. You'll never understand yourself, you'll never understand life, except you get light and knowledge from Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. My dear friend, let me put it to you very simply like this. Do you understand what's happening in the world at this present time? Are you baffled and bewildered by all the confusion? Do you say, I don't understand the nations piling up these armaments and preparing for war? I don't understand it, don't you? You come to Christ and you will. He'll explain history to you. He'll explain the present position to you. He will show you that sin in the human heart that ever leads to war. He'll show you that whatever the nations may decide, it'll come to nothing. While men are at enmity against God, they must be at enmity against one another. He'll give you understanding. He'll show you the plan of the ages, the outlook upon eternity. It's all here in this wonderful book. And he will give you light. So if you are thirsting for light and for knowledge and for understanding, come unto him. And you'll then be able to join the Apostle Paul in saying, we have the mind of Christ. And then if you need strength and power, he'll give it to you. That's the story of the church. Weaklings made mighty, paupers made rich, Men who are slaves to sin made more than conqueror. Read the lives of the saints. Study the history of the church. He gives the strength and the power. Hold me with thy powerful hand. You say to him and he will. What is he to give us? He has everything. Sight, riches, healing of the mind... Yea, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who, like thee, his praise should sing. That's what he gives. He supplies our every need. He doeth all things well. But again I say to be intensely practical and simple, let me say this. How am I to obtain all these riches? What you mean, says someone, by drinking? What he mean by saying, let him come unto me and drink? Oh, my dear friend, let me put it. God, give me strength and power to explain it. It's like this. It doesn't merely mean a general intellectual acceptance of what the gospel says. It starts with it, but it doesn't stop with it. What then does it mean? It means this. It means an actual going and taking and receiving 
and drinking. Oh, well, like this. It means that you believe what he says. What he says about himself, his life, his death, and all that follows. It means that you believe what the scripture says about him. Because you don't know anything apart from the scripture. It means that you come as a little child, submitting yourself to the revelation and believing it. But you know it means this in particular, that you believe that for yourself. That you believe that it is true to you. That when Christ speaks to the woman of Samaria, he's speaking to you. That here he's addressing you. And that must be perfectly plain and clear like this, so I can test it. If you believe this, if you believe this is for you, if you believe that he's the Son of God and that he died for your sins, well, then you must believe it at once. You must believe it now. If you begin to say to me, no, no, I can't, I'm unworthy. I must go home and think about it and reason about it. I must give up certain things and take up other things. I must arrive at certain decisions. The moment you say that, I say you're not drinking. To drink and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to do it exactly as you are. Here and now. Without any moment's delay, do you notice what his invitation is? If any man, not only a good man, but a bad man, any man without any conditions or any reservations, no moral conditions, no conditions of knowledge, no conditions of wealth, no conditions of age, nothing matters. If any man thirsts, If there's a child in this congregation that is really thirsting, I say to you, come and drink. Is there an octogenarian here? Someone who says, I wish I'd heard that long ago, but I'm old. I've lived a life of sin. I've ignored him. I say to you, it doesn't matter. Come. Come now. If any man thirst, it doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't count. You say, I've been vile, I've been foul, I've lived in gutters. Come, says Christ, if you're thirsting, come. You must be justified by faith alone. God justifieth the ungodly. Oh, what a gospel. And if you say, I'm ungodly, I'm sinful, I'm unworthy, I'm not yet fit, it means you haven't understood it. What he's saying is this, as you are, come. Come as you are. Don't wait for anything. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. As you are, he says, the only condition is your thirst. If you're thirsting, come and drink. 
So you come at once. You come as you are. You don't linger for fitness. You don't wait for some improvement. Just as you are without one plea. But that his blood was shed for you. Come, he says. So if you don't come at once, you haven't understood it, my friend. You come in your rags, you come in your need, you come in your penury, you come in your vileness, you come in your sin, you come in your rebellion. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Did you come into this very building hating God and hating Christ tonight, but now you've seen it's wrong? Well, come, I say, the past doesn't matter. The past shall be forgotten, a present joy be given, a future grace be promised, a glorious crown in heaven. Now, just as you are, come and drink. Simply come to him, believing the truth about him as the Son of God, who died for your sins. Come and tell him so. Tell him that you believe in him. Tell him you see the way that you accept it. You don't understand it, but you are venturing on him. Venture on him, venture wholly, just as you are. Take him, drink of him, thank him for what he's done and for having come into the world. And tell him that you desire nothing apart from him. That is what he says. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And you won't thirst another second. Once you believe that he died for you and your sins, your conscience will no longer worry you. You won't be afraid of death. You won't be afraid of the judgment. You won't be afraid of God with that craven sense of fear. You will stand before him. Oh, let me appeal to you. Let me use Paul's illustration and argument. Do what Abraham did. There was Abraham age 99 and Sarah over 90. And God said, look here, Sarah's going to bear a son to you, Abraham. And Abraham, you remember we are told he didn't stagger through unbelief. He knew his own age. He knew his own condition. He knew Sarah's age and the condition of her womb. God says, you shall have a son. And they believed him. As they were with nothing but the bare word of God. Do you know, says Paul to the Romans, that was not only written for Abram, it was written for us also. If we believe in him that raised him from the dead, Jesus delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. It means this, you see. I hear this blessed invitation. But then I begin to say, oh, it can't be for me. If I'd lived a good and a godly life then... But I haven't. I've lived an evil life. I'm black, I'm dark, I'm foul. How can I? Ah, I say, do what Abraham did. As he was and the deadness of Sarah's womb. In spite of everything against hope. He believed in hope. He believed the plain, simple word of God. And here it is coming to you now. If any man thirst, that's all. That's all he postulates. Your need... Let him come unto me and drink. Let not conscience make you linger. Or of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth. 
is to feel your need of him. Come, you paupers. Come, you moral lepers. Come, you who are condemned by the law of God. Come, you who spurned the voice divine and blasphemed the name of God. Come as you are and believe in him. The Christ of God who died for the ungodly, for the vile, for sinners, for refuse. Not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to save. Have you known the thirst? Have you seen the vanity of life without him? Have you thought of dying without him? Have you thought of facing God on the throne of judgment in eternity? Have you seen it and seen your lost estate? If you have, come unto him as you are and believe that he, the Son of God, died for your sin. And he'll tell you that he did. He'll give you a sense of peace, an assurance of pardon. He'll give you new life. He'll give you new strength. He'll regenerate you. And you won't know yourself and you'll go on through this world as if it were a new world. All things are passed away and all things are become new. And you'll go on, he'll lead you, he'll guide you to the end and eventually present you faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And not only will you be blessed, you'll be made a blessing to others. Come. Amen.